Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. It's the ultimate HR platform for small and growing businesses with simple software and expert support for benefits, payroll, HR, and compliance. Across the country, small businesses with big dreams love JustWorks for its simplicity, intuitive platform, and time-saving features. Whether your team is remote or maybe it's in person, you can give them access to national, large group health insurance plans and manage onboarding, payroll, part-time off, and compliance all in one place. And sure, you can do it all, but why do it all alone? Learn how JustWorks can help. With JustWorks, you can onboard new employees with ease. You can take guesswork out of employment and tax regulations and requirements. You can access national health insurance plans, get help setting up sick leave policies and all that kind of stuff. Save hours on time tracking that syncs with payroll, plus access 24-7 expert support, as well as certified HR consultants to get answers to your questions whenever you need them, which is awesome. Find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to justworks.com. That's justworks.com for more info. So you know how these podcast ads go, right? We read a spiel, blah, blah, blah. We give you a promo code for a discount, the end. But this one is a little bit different because this ad is for Honey and Honey ad doesn't just give you one promo code. A Honey ad gives you millions of promo codes. That's right, millions of promo codes in one ad. I've actually used Honey and I've saved so much money with it. I used it yesterday, in fact. Kaoni, my son, was buying something online. We have our Honey browser extension installed and when we came to check out, a little pop-up came on the screen and said, hey, would you like to have Honey find you a promo code for this? And we were able to save like five bucks. You know, I know some people have saved like hundreds of dollars. It scours the internet for coupon codes that work with sites. And guess what? It's completely free, which is crazy. So when you shop, no matter where it is, Honey will automatically fill in the promo code box for you at checkout, but it's not just gonna fill it with one. It fills out with all of them that that exist and, and sees which ones still work, which ones don't, and it gives you the best one. Right. Plus, they know where to look for promo codes. And, and it, I mean, you could do this automatically, but why would you? It's like getting a million promo codes from just one little podcast ad. So, yeah, it's awesome and it will save you money. There's no better reason to get it. And you might have heard it on other people's channels. And I honestly didn't believe it was this useful until I tried it myself. And yeah, it's it's absolutely great. All right. So get all the promo codes Honey can find at joinhoney.com slash SPI. That's joinhoney.com slash SPI. Quick install, it'll find those coupon codes for you. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And here's your host. He wants to write a short story that one day becomes an animated Pixar short, Pat Flynn. I started my speaking career in 2011 thanks to Philip Taylor from FinCon or the Financial Blogger Conference. And that was a huge moment. In fact, I got last minute called onto the keynote stage because the keynote speaker, Trent Disman, was unable to make it. And so I was kind of thrown in the deep end. And although I was nervous and although I was scared, 
it was a life-changing moment. I absolutely fell in love with the stage. And even still today, I still speak when I can. It's been a couple of years since COVID, of course, but I still get nervous, just as nervous as I was back then. I've just learned how to deal with it. Well, in 2018, I decided to go a little bit further with my speaking career, and instead of attending another person's conference and speaking there and trying to deliver value, I decided that I was gonna put on my own event. And I pitched this to the team, Team SPI and I, we decided that in 2019, in the summer of 2019, here in San Diego, we'd put on an event for 500 people who wanted to come. There were some things about it that were very different. I had spoken at a lot of events, so I knew what was great, what was not so great, and I wanted to put on the premier event for entrepreneurs in a family-friendly scene. So it was a family-friendly conference. That means there were no, you know, everything from no swear words, but also the fact that kids were invited, kids could hang out, and there was even an arcade. Yes, we had an arcade with stand-up arcade machines, as well as Mario Kart happening. There was a Mario Kart tournament that happened during this conference. And yes, it was a business conference, but this was all integrated with it, as well as my family. My family was integrated. My son and my daughter came on stage. My wife came on stage. We talked about family life and business and the intermixing of those things together and the pros and cons of all that. It was a really amazing experience. And 2019 was also the year that we launched Superfans, the latest book that I have come out with and published. And that has been very successful since then, but that was the launch that started it all. And we gave away a free copy to everybody. We surprised everybody because we said the launch was gonna happen a couple months later, and then boom, there it was. We had a little signing at the pool party after. It was just so much fun. And so many great things came out of it. And although we at Team SPI came out under as far as finances and stuff. I I didn't expect to break even. In fact, in my research, I discovered that many people who put on events are only profitable after the second or third year, if not later. So of course, I wanted to get to that point. So we pre-sold tickets at the 2019 closing keynote, and we had nearly 100 people sign up for tickets for the next year, which was going to happen same place, same time, July of 2020. And we were getting the planning done. We were getting new sponsors to come on board. It was looking to be pretty profitable. And then come March, it seemed like, well, things were gonna not happen the way we expected. And I'm not just talking about the event, but the entire world. I had spoken at the Social Media Marketing World Conference in February of 2020. And that was right around the time of the outbreak. And it was at a point where people weren't sure if we should shake hands anymore. There was a lot of elbow bumping happening, sanitizer everywhere. Got home from that event. It was in my hometown, so it wasn't a long drive. And a couple of weeks later, it was boom, locked down. And we had just missed it. Thankfully, there was no outbreak or anything like that at that conference. But the truth was, FlynnCon. Uh, and and everything around that. I mean, there were way more important things to think about, but obviously this was something that was coming up, so we had to plan for it. We had rented out and booked a bunch of hotels in the San Diego area that we had to pay for. We rented out the space. We pre-sold these tickets. What were we gonna do? Well, we decided to delay it a year. So it was supposed to happen in 2021, and we were very grateful that everybody who had bought a ticket, or for the most part, everybody was very understanding of that. We even awarded those people who had purchased pre-order tickets an extra course or a workshop of ours as sort of a thank you for waiting, and we'd come back in 2021 and even stronger. Well, that didn't happen either. And man, it was a kind of financial and logistical nightmare. And big thanks to the entire team and especially Jess for helping to coordinate things in such a way that we could remove ourselves from the contracts that we were in. Also, 
big shout out to Christy Birch, who is also on our sort of events team, who we hired on contract. We got out of everything, everything except the tickets that we had sold. And so Jess and I had some conversations and we said, you know what? We can't just delay this another year. We are holding these people's money. That's the trouble with these events sometimes. You know, you get this money up front, and that was two years ago, and you might spend it or you might put it somewhere. And of course, thankfully, we had a nice bankroll and some emergency funds. We were able to offer everybody a refund or a special offer to one of our new courses or or things like that. Everybody was taken care of, or at least everybody who at least got the email. And if you didn't, please let us know if you did buy one of those tickets. So where does that leave us for today? What happened to FlynnCon? Well, I just told you, but what's going to happen to FlynnCon? Well, as of right now, it is likely not going to happen again, at least not anytime soon. We don't have a hotel. We are not going to plan to do it in 2022. And who knows where it's gonna go from there. But to everybody who was there, thank you so much for a memorable and incredible experience I mean, I have visions of the book signing and me on stage and standing on ladders and a couple of very powerful moments where I was sitting on a stool talking about legacy and the spotlight was on me to watching my son give a presentation in front of everybody to the amazing speakers who were there from F. Dot, an artist who you've seen these Surf First shirts. He's the one who designed these Surf First shirts, talking very powerfully about what had happened after his apartment burned down and how he turned that into something incredible to Shalene Johnson, to Stu McLaren, Chris Ducker, of course, emceeing, and and so many more speakers, incredible speakers, guests, Shane and Jocelyn were there. Mark Mason, one of our very first guests here on the Smart Passive Income podcast was there. Dana Malstaff from Boss Mom. It was an event to remember. The Arcade, and big shout out to Brendan as well for manning that and the community, to the sponsors, Teachable ConvertKit. Man, it was so amazing and Big shout out and thank you to everybody from Team SPI who was there to take care of everybody and run the show. And big thanks to the VIPs. It's not happening anymore. But you know what is happening? Next week, in fact, if you're listening to this on the date that this comes out, there is an event happening. If you didn't know, this is your time to know. And guess what? This event is totally free. You don't have to travel to it. You just got to make a little bit of time for it. It's called the Audience Driven Summit. And I am so proud of the entire team for putting this together over the past three to four months, in fact, and pulling together some incredible speakers for our very first SPI Summit. It's run on the Hey Summit platform. Definitely check them out because they've made things really, really great and easy. And this is really cool because the setup of this is is quite different than obviously a in-person live event. This is sort of a mix of live and pre-recorded. It is run like a live event online where you sign up and again, go to audiencedriven.co to sign up. This is your last chance to sign up. It's free and again, you can attend all or some from some of your favorite speakers, everybody from Neil Patel talking truly about what's working in traffic building and audience building today and into 2022, Roberto Blake, Rob Maurer from Tesla Daily. We got Kenya Kelly talking about TikTok and IG Reels. We also have an incredible YouTuber, Ali Abdal, with over 2 million subscribers talking about what's working in video today. You're not gonna wanna miss this. And like I said, it's 100% free. There is no reason not to sign up. If anything, even just to get a couple of the the talks or the replays or things like that. So again, audiencedriven.co. Most of the team 
has been doing the hard work so that it was easy for us and the speakers to just have a great time and show up and deliver value. So I wanna give a big shout out to Tony Bacicalupo, who's been really the person who's been taking the lead on putting this together. He is a new team member of ours for about a year now, who has joined us ever since SPI Pro has come about. He created the co-working space scene in New York, and he's been an incredible addition to Team SPI. And Jillian, of course, our community manager, and Jay Klaus, and so many others here on Team SPI has helped put this together. This is your last chance. Go ahead and sign up now because this is what events are gonna look like for now in the environment that we're in. But as you've heard me talk about before, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, the importance of adapting, right? Pivot, as Ross would say, pivot <laughs> for any friends, fans out there. We're pivoting, right? We are making a huge pivot, not just from live events in person to now online summit, but there's a bigger pivot even happening within the brand of SPI and what our positioning is gonna be. So you'll hear more about this at the Audience Driven Summit, audiencedriven.co, register now. But this is likely the first public announcement that you're hearing about this, that from this point forward, most if not all of the content that comes out on SPI, on the blog, and our focus is gonna be on helping you build your audience, audience-driven. And the words audience-driven are really important because it's not just about collecting subscribers and building followers and big brands. In fact, it's not about that at all. It's about gathering your best community and driving your business as a result of that community that you're building. Audience-driven, the content that you create, the products that you create, the coaching programs, the consultations, the physical products, all driven from the audience that you build first. Audience first, serve first, then your business comes from there. And this is inherently what we've always been sort of a proponent for, but now we're putting our flag in the ground, stomping our feet going, yo, let us help you build your audience with true growth, targeted audiences, because yeah, you could have a million people visit your website or your podcast, but if they're not targeted, I mean, they're not gonna convert. But conversion means them taking the next step with you, not just a funnel. Funnels and strategies and things like that are very important. I mean, we had Jeff Walker on the podcast recently, but when you target the right people and you serve them and you use the things that we're gonna teach you from this point forward, and again, we've taught these things before, but now it's clear and it should be clear Yes, we're still trying to help you build your dream business, which was our tagline for so long, but more tangible, we wanna help you grow that audience. So let us help you. Audiencedriven.co is when we're starting. I want you to come in with open eyes and open ears and a notepad. Remember, it's free. And you can grow your audience and monetize it authentically. Audiencedriven.co. Hope to see you there. I'm gonna be there. The whole team's gonna be there as well as these incredible speakers that are gonna show up for you. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be so much fun. I'll see you there. Audiencedriven.co happening next week. Sign up now before it's too late or you could sign up for when the next summit or any other replay information is gonna be available. It depends when you listen to this and when you go to that page, but that will always be the URL, audiencedriven.co. Go there now to get the latest. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. 
Our series producer is David Grabowski, and our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Also, today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs like you and a great way to get your product in front of over 1 million entrepreneurs, founders, and small businesses. So here's what's going on. They're giving away their entire $1 million Black Friday marketing budget to creators like you. If you have an ebook, an online course, templates, or any other digital products, this is for you. You list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th, and the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000, the next 2,000 will get 250, and everyone who gets listed gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners to potentially receive $10,000. So go to AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn to list your product today and cash in on this amazing deal. Again, AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn. Link in the description as well. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome back to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I'm your host, Matt Addison, with our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorst, and also our sports social media editor, Kai Delaney, alongside me to talk through all of the latest Liverpool topics and bring you some really interesting themes to get into this afternoon. We're going to begin with a look at the situation at Newcastle United after their takeover went through last week. I know that Guy Clark and I think Dan Kay and Theo Squire spoke a little bit about that on Friday's edition of the podcast. But since then, there have been a few more developments and things to get into too. But I suppose first and foremost, I should give you both the opportunity to give us a, a bit of a general thoughts on the, the Newcastle takeover, Gorsty. I think there's probably two sides of it that we have to touch upon. One is the sort of sports washing element. The other is the fact that they are very, very rich and could soon become a contender at the top of the Premier League table. What have you sort of made of, of the takeover? How big a worry should it be for, for Liverpool moving forwards? Uh, to, to answer the second part of your question, Matt, I don't think Liverpool fans need to be concerned at all. Certainly not for the next three or four years. Newcastle aren't going to... I mean, let's say they're in the relegation zone at the moment, aren't they? They're not going to be... Um, they're not going to become Manchester City in, in the blink of an eye. It's going to take several really good transfer windows for that to happen for them to to build up, you know, the kind of level that they want to be at. Um, and I'm not sure it's it's possible anymore, to be honest. With financial fair play and so on. I don't think that was just quite as prevalent as when City was spending all their money towards the turn of the decade and a little bit further into it. And it certainly wasn't was prevalent when Chelsea came in with Roman Abramovich. So I think it's a little bit more difficult for teams to be able to do that, you know, with a magic wand and in the space of one transfer window. So 
Um, there's absolutely no concerns, or there shouldn't be any concerns to Liverpool fans anytime soon. You know, as I say, City came in, City's owners 2008, I think they won the FA Cup in 2011 and then won the Premier League in 2012. So it took them a good few years to become serious contenders. And, and this is a squad that was far better than Newcastle's is at the moment. If Newcastle have a, have a poor January transfer window, they could be right up against it for the season, to be honest. Um, the squad isn't great as it is. And, you know, having a an ownership group that's worth 230 billion or whatever the stupid figure is, that's not going to change anything overnight. It will take time. Um, so Liverpool fans shouldn't, you know, wouldn't wouldn't blink twice at Newcastle, you know, no matter how much money they've got, certainly not for a good few years. Um, to answer the first part of your question, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm staggered that it's been allowed to go through. Uh, I know Amanda Stavely has, has said that the, Public investment fund is not, you know, directly linked to to Saudi Arabia's monarchy and whatever else. But um, I don't think anyone seriously believes that. And the Premier League are claiming that they've had legally banned assurances and whatever else. But let's face it, money talks, doesn't it? Money talks in this country, whether it's football, sports, any kind of sector. Um, this country seems. Uh, very willing to um, acquiesce to the highest bidders, and it looks like that's what what's happened there. So, um, should it be happening? Probably not, but um, we are where we are. Yeah, plenty of sort of questions around it, Kai, in, in that regard. I mean, I said to, to you this morning, I think it might take sort of eight to ten years for Liverpool fans to have to be concerned. Do you think that's a sort of realistic timescale? As, as Gorsty said, they're right at the bottom now. It's not really a quick fix and it's it's not really the same as, as a Chelsea or a Manchester City in the past. No, it's not. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that's not been mentioned at all is actually, I think you brought it up this morning, we, we were having a chat that there's still the possibility that if they don't get their January transfer window, right, they could end up getting relegated. And with all these new owners, and, you know, what would they make of that? Um, losing the Premier League revenue and, and everything that comes with, with being in that competition. But, um, yeah, I think that they're certainly, they've got a long way to go. Everyone obviously looks at City as the, the kind of obvious template there. Um, going from having no money to all the riches in the world. But it's, it was a long process for City to get where they are now. You know, that they had that initial phase of uh, signing players like Craig Bellamy, you know, Benjani, Rocky Cruz, who were some of the brightest prospects in the league. But they were really just taking the best players from those around them and making themselves the best of the rest, getting into the kind of, can we get into the top four? Uh, conversation. So they've got a, a long road ahead of them, and, and certainly before they're worrying the likes of Man United, Man City, Liverpool, and so on, um, they, they've got to get themselves clear of the rest of the pack. Yeah, certainly a long journey ahead for, for Newcastle and their new owners and, and their fans. But it's not just the, the transfers and, and the money that we're going to be speaking about, it's obviously the, the links to, to Steven Gerrard as well, Gorsty. He's reportedly one of the favourites, if not the favourite, to, to move there from Rangers. It, it does make a, a little bit of sense to me. Is is that one that you can see happening, do you think, in, in the future? Uh, well, I haven't, I haven't spoken to, to anyone around Gerard's camp about this, but um, it, it's something that, that seems to just have a little bit of um, realism attached to it, if that makes sense. It it's, seems to be, obviously, Newcastle looking to build, and Gerard, I'm sure, has got designs on managing in England at some point. 
Um, Amanda Staley said on Friday, didn't she? She was asked about Steve Bruce's future and rather than just say, oh, well, he's the manager and whatever else, and, and that will be the case. It was almost a, we haven't had a chance to, to give that a, a thought. So you'd imagine that that doesn't over too well for Bruce's future. You imagine that once you sit down and, and you think about what they want to do, that a new, uh, more high-profile manager might be on the agenda. And um, despite his kind of, you know, he's still in the fledgling years of his career. Gerard is is a high profile manager, isn't he? You know, he's what he's achieved at Rangers in such a short space of time is, is nothing short of remarkable, really. And there will be plenty who, who are keeping tabs on him. And, and the case who would be for him is whether, you know, whether he wants to move to England now or he wants to continue with the project that he's got at Rangers. I imagine his standard in the game right now as a football manager, um, he'll be able to. I was pick of, of several options. Um, so if, if some, something like Newcastle did come up, I, I guess the ball would be in his court to, to give it a, a thought. Uh, I think Kenny Ragbish said that across the weekend that Gerard wouldn't be thinking anywhere close to managing Newcastle at the moment. And that's probably true, isn't he? He'll say that he's focused on Rangers and so on. But if Newcastle did kind of make a, you know an advance, then I'd imagine it'd be something that he'd, he'd certainly think long and hard about yeah it's a, a big club a big fan base a step up from scottish football and it also wouldn't be competing directly with liverpool immediately it does seem to take quite a lot of boxes kind yeah you, you can certainly make a case and, and see it happening and, and you can see why there might be tempted if if um the offer is on the table as you say it's certainly a step up going from from uh, the spl and to one of, you know, that they have been the most successful team in England, but they're certainly one of the biggest in terms of profile and, and the fan base and very similar to Liverpool, I think, in the way that, that the city is really, you know, lives and breathes, uh, lives and breathes football and it's famous for that kind of goldfish bowl element, which has sometimes been used in a, a negative context and people of managers and players have struggled with that and there's kind of nothing other than football in the city. But I think, you know, Gerard had been in Liverpool all his life and similar arrangements now. Um, I think it, it, he'd be completely used to that at Newcastle and clearly, you know, he, he thrives in that kind of environment. And if, if he's given the opportunity to take Newcastle to that next step and, you know, the old phrase is a war chest, isn't it? If he's been getting 150, 200 million to, to spend and really implement his own start and, and build his own team there to... So, you know, it, it could be for the next several years at Newcastle if you can make a bit of a legacy there and, and take them on the, that next step towards being, uh, you know, where, where they want to be, then that would certainly put him in good stead when um, the opportunity comes up to Liverpool because some of the accusations that were maybe put to Lampard about why he failed at Chelsea was it was too early. He didn't have any Premier League experience, obviously going straight in from Derby. So maybe for Gerrard to get that, that Premier League job and have a, a few years... Uh, yeah, with, his, with his own team at a bit of a higher level could be just what he needs. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of been difficult, hasn't it, Gorsty, in terms of thinking Rangers to Liverpool would be a big step, but who would be that club in the middle? I, I can't necessarily see him going abroad and doing that. You think of a team maybe like an Everton, he's not going to go there. Aston Villa are quite settled with their own manager. They don't need somebody. Leeds United are, are the same. Newcastle, though, could be a, a bit of an opportunity where you think that it's it's the right level of club. There's lots of similarities between Rangers and Liverpool. It, it just just does just make logical sense in in certain ways. 
Yeah, but very much so. Um, as I say, though, I mean, it, it dep- depends how much thought Gerard is currently given to his long-term career prospects. He obviously will have designs on eventually managing in the Premier League, and, and I'm pretty sure that will be with Liverpool one day. But um, will he be thinking about it now? Does he still have things he wants to achieve at Ibrox? And um, you could argue maybe not. You know, he's, he's managed to kind of dislodge Celtic and. Um, end the kind of 10 in a row and, you know, he's going to be a legend forever for what he's already done up there. But um, I suppose only him and, and his kind of inner circle will know what his, um, what his, his ambitions are at the moment. What do you think is the, the kind of ceiling for Newcastle, Kai? If, you know, Gerard was, was to go there, is that something that he could take them to the next level? Do you think how quickly would that have to happen for that to be the perfect next step? It's it's a it's an interesting time to take the role, isn't it? Because you you know, as as Gorsi was saying, they they're going to be looking for a name. Would, would they be taking the Rangers manager if he wasn't Stephen Gerrard? Probably not. You know, he has been successful there, and he, he did end the, the ten year domination of Celtic. But he, he's as much a, a brand worldwide and, and a, a global name as he is a, a successful manager in his short time uh, in the game so far as manager. But it's uh, it's I, I like the Man City situation earlier, and you'd have to say it, it would be maybe the Mark Hughes role. It is, it's the first time you've got, they're giving you all the money to spend, and it, it's not going to be one manager in Newcastle that takes them from where they are now to Premier League champions. If, if okay, they're going to have a few sort of stepping stones, and it may be that they could both use each other as a, a stepping stone. Gerald could use Newcastle as, as that, that pathway towards you know, eventually Liverpool and bigger and better things for his own career and, and Newcastle could perhaps use Gerard as stepping stone to get into perhaps European football, possibly Champions League if you know, absolutely dreamland. And then if if Gerard leaves when the time comes, they'll be in a better position to go out and get a bigger name, you know, maybe a Antonio Conte or something that's been around and has European pedigree. Lots of players already inevitably being linked with a, a move to Newcastle Gorsley. Felipe Coutinho is one of those. Lots of reports, as I say, inevitably around players like that. But I just can't see that being the case straight away. I think Coutinho is is obviously a name that is easy to link with them, but it just doesn't feel like that's the kind of player they'd be going for straight away. Yeah, I'm not even sure that Newcastle's owners will have had a chance to have sat down with um, any kind of um, decision maker at, at a transfer level, if that makes sense. Um, so I don't believe that they've got, you know, cast iron shortlist on who they want at this stage. It's not, they only come in on Friday, didn't they? Thursday, Friday. Um, so it, I mean, it's going to be easy to band around a lot of the names and, and random figures attached to them for the the amount of money that they've suddenly got. But um, I, I don't believe that they'll be that far along. And, and as I said, I don't think Liverpool fans should be too too concerned about it. It's going to be interesting to watch. But obviously, the human rights aspect of the ownership that we've, we've touched on and, and other people uh, have spoken about, and, and they are wholly correct, to, to be honest. Um, but um, I suppose from a, from a football perspective, it is, it is going to be quite intriguing to see what level of play and what level of um, finance is going to go into it. 
Are there any Liverpool players you think, Kai, that maybe could be having a look at, at them? Someone like a, a Divock Origi, maybe Liverpool have struggled to, to sort of find a, a buyer for him. Is this another option for, for them, possibly, in that regard? I mean, it, it would be that that type of player, wouldn't it? The, the fringe players, the Divock Origi's, Minamino, we saw him on loan at Southampton last year. Possibly even someone like an Oxlade-Chamberlain, if, if they're serious and they want to you know, push their way up the table. Oxford Chamberlain's got incredible quality. It's just been his injuries and he struggled to really get forces away into the Liverpool team on a consistent basis. So yeah, there's certainly players there on, on the fringes. No doubt Shakiri would have been that type of player if, if he was still around. But um, yeah, you know, as, as Paul was just saying, that there's a there's a lot long way to go for their recruitment process. And um, I'm sure that there'll be a, a lot of names linked over the next few weeks and months leading up to January. But I've got no doubt that they'll they'll go out and make that statement signing. That no doubt they'll get a few in, but they'll certainly be be one. Uh, I'm sure they're looking to to bring in and sell the shirts. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Plenty to think about in terms of Newcastle United's recruitment moving forward. And that ties in quite nicely with Gini Wijnaldum, of course, a former Newcastle United player. There were some comments from him, Gorsty, today where he wasn't maybe particularly happy with how it's gone so far at PSG. What did you make of, of those comments? Is it too early to be making a, a judgment on how it's gone? Or is this maybe an early sign that things aren't quite going quite as smoothly as he would have wanted? Yeah, I think so. He's was he played eleven times, but he's only played five hundred minutes. I think um, was brought on for the last fifteen minutes or so against Man City in the big Champions League game so far. You know, PSG's biggest game of the season to date, uh, and he was a substitute again when they were beaten last week by Rennes. But um, I suppose this is the risky run when you move to a club with the squad that Paris Saint Germain have got. You know, obviously. It's it's um, the most difficult place to get in their team is, is obviously up front with the embarrassment of riches they've got with Neymar and Messi and Mbappe and you know Acardi and Di Maria, but in midfield they're well stocked as well. Um, so maybe Wijnaldum is finding it a little bit tough to show Pochettino that he's capable of getting in there ahead of you know Marco Verratti or a, a Drissa Gay or even an Ander Herrera, but. Part and parcel of, of being at a top club, isn't it? He, he knows that from his five years at Liverpool, and um, he will have been fully aware of that movement to PSG. So, um, if there are some frustrations, then you know it's, that's that's what happens. Uh, I'm sure he'll knuckle down and try and get into the team, but um, I don't think I don't think Liverpool need to be casting too much of a, of a glance to Paris at that and thinking what could have been because you know we've been over this. Plenty of times I've had me wanted to stay, Klopp wanted him to stay, and, and he hasn't. So, um, you know, he's moved on, and I'm sure he'll uh, get his head down and try and get in the PSG team. I'm sure he'll settle down there eventually. But, Kai, I suppose with Curtis Jones having picked up a, a little bit of an injury this international break with the England under-21s, the, the question isn't going to go away about have Liverpool adequately replaced Wijnaldum. And, of course, there's a couple of other players missing. We don't expect Fabinho will be there at there, the weekend. Uh, weekend. There is a, there is a, a, a question bit of a question there mark. as well. Yeah, I mean, of course, they, they never did directly replace him in terms of a, a one-in-one-out actual transfer signing of a midfielder in the window but I think we, we all saw possibly what, what the plan was at the start of the season with the emergence of Harvey Elliott and just how big of a role Klopp was planning for him to have in this side 
um, you know, started uh, against Chelsea and uh, I think the Burnley game. So it was a massive show of faith for him. And, and he had been one of Liverpool's brightest players the first few games. So you know, a, a real shame that injury came when it did. And I think if, if Elliot hadn't have been around, then possibly a, a direct replacement on Adam would have come in. But um, yeah, you know, with with Genie's situation at, at uh, PSG, I, I still think you can argue what what else could he have done? You know, as as uh, Paul just said, then Klopp wanted him to stay, and whether the he said on numerous occasions when Adam that he he'll say when the time is right what actually did happen behind the scenes with his contract, and we still don't know what actually did happen there. But it appeared to come down to a, a straight choice between. PSG or Barcelona, and you see the mess Barcelona are in at the moment. You, you still argue he'd probably be probably better off at PSG, having a kind of rotation role and, and you know having a, a say in a, a team that's probably going to win the league and uh, no doubt a Champions League run as well. So yeah, Liverpool haven't haven't replaced him possibly as, as fans would have liked, but the, the emergence of Elliot and, and Curtis Jones in recent weeks as well, when when they do have uh, everybody fit and firing, they've got more than enough options for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably one of the, the few question marks that, that I would have this season, Gorsty, is maybe a little bit over the form of, of Jordan Henderson. Do you think it's a bit premature to say that maybe he's missing Gini Wijnaldum alongside him? Or do you think that's something that over the next few weeks will, will just not be not be an issue at all? Yeah, I don't, don't think it's, it's too much of an issue. Um, fail to see really what results Liverpool would have got had they had Wijnaldum in there instead of a Curtis Jones or, or a Harvey Elliott. Um we might have beaten 10-man Chelsea, possibly. Um, it's difficult to say, isn't it? But Liverpool can't really be looking to fall all the way across the players who've left because they're in a really healthy state. Um, so, you know, of course, we, we talk about Van Alden because there's still plenty of interest in it and, and we see that every day with the the stuff that we put out, don't we? You know, people always read it and they're still interested in it. But um, I think it's probably time to... Um, to move on from from Gino and all the other you know, the brilliant five years at Liverpool and will always be remembered for certain moments and what he won is importance to the team. But um, there is life after Gino and Alden at Liverpool. Yes, there certainly is. And I suppose just before we move on from the midfield area entirely, Kai, we'll speak about it more, I'm sure, on, on Friday's edition of the podcast. But I did mention before that Fabinho is likely to be missing. Alisson the same because of their international commitments with Brazil. But in terms of that midfield area, given that absence and a couple of different injuries, what's the solution there, do you think? Is there a player to, to come in, Naby Keita perhaps, or, or might there be change of formation that's the answer what's the sort of solution to that do you think yeah I mean you've always got the option of going to the the four two three one which we we saw at times last season and maybe they did that with they switched to it in games with kind of half an hour to go if they were chasing a game obviously that would rely on uh needing Jota to be fit because there's, there's been some news today that he, he may not be available for, for the weekend but of course you'll know more on that than I will but um you know, if, if the front four are all ready and available, then you could do the, the two midfielders there and that would probably solve that problem. Um, if not, then you've got the, the option of Jordan Henderson as the, the sixth, the holding midfielder, as we've seen him do really well over, over the last few years when he's had to fill in there. So, uh, yeah, even despite the injuries that Liverpool have got and are carrying at the moment, they've still got enough, uh, enough options to get through. 
yeah, still a few days to sort of work out the extent of certain injuries and who will and, and won't be available. As I say, we'll talk about that on Friday's edition of the podcast when we do preview that Watford game. But for today, we'll finish with a, a little bit of something different, obviously. Not been loads going on during the international break, Gorsty, but you've been out and about down at Stamford Bridge in London for the Stats Bomb Conference and plenty of, of interesting things to, to come out of that. Yeah, it was a really interesting day. Actually, I think it was maybe the third or fourth staff bomb conference at uh, Stamford Bridge. Obviously, staff bomb signed a deal with Liverpool in March, didn't he? For Liverpool to use their staff bomb 360 services and basically just kind of drill down even further into the data analysis, which we know Liverpool are, are superb at, probably one of the, the best in Europe as it goes. Michael Edwards is obviously um, a big proponent of that very early on in his time at Liverpool and the research departments under him have, have done plenty of, of great work that goes under the radar, and that's kind of the way Liverpool have always wanted it. Um, so there's a strict six-man research team, um, quite a few of them were at the events at Stamford Bridge, and the director of research, Ian Graham, was um, was giving a talk on kind of how um, you know the, the best practice of um, of looking into to, to how how they recruit. Um, so it was a, it was a very interesting, you know, very interesting day. People like Victor Orta were there, who obviously director of football at Leeds. Um, Vusa, Vusa Debu there, whose name I've probably butchered there, but she's the head of, um, head of science, sports science at Ajax. Um, she gave a talk. Um, it, was just a, it was just a day full of um, really interesting kind of, deep dives into the um, the analysis world of football. And it's something that's become a lot more prevalent over the last well, four or five years. It was maybe once ridiculed at times, but we've seen it creep into the mainstream lexicon in recent years, haven't we, with expected goals and expected assists. And, um, yeah, if, if, if that's, your, that's your bag, it would have been a very interesting day at Stamford Bridge. But it's great just to hear Ian Graham speak on, on how Liverpool work. Um, it, it was more... More, more of a general theme, really, rather than this is how Liverpool specifically work. But there was a few little details of um, Liverpool's recruitment department and, and how they operate. And yeah, as I say, it was a, it was a very uh, interesting day. Yeah, lots of names that people will be familiar with. Michael Edwards, Julian Wardy and Graham, as you mentioned, Tim Waskett as well, all people that, that, that work behind the, the scenes at, at Liverpool. And we don't get to, to hear from them that often. Obviously, the, the work has to be secretive to an extent. But what was the kind of purpose of the event? Why is it that these people were, were coming along and, and speaking to this conference? It, it's not something that we see them do too frequently. But what was the, the kind of reasoning behind that, do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a um, it, it's it's a professional kind of conference for, for you know the people who were there weren't weren't journalists. I managed to, to get in there and um, was sitting there alongside um, Josh Williams and, and David Alexander Hughes, who obviously do the Analyze Landfield podcast. If you listen to that, it's it's very much along the same themes as what what they speak about on there. Very kind of tactical and detailed and um, very maths centric. Um, and yeah, Michael Edwards was there. Uh, he, was, he was sitting in front of me. Um, he was in row one. I was in row two, uh, alongside um, Julian Ward as, as assistant, and David Woodfine, who looks after the loans, and Tim Waskett, as, as you say. So I think it's just generally Liverpool kind of, um, you know, it's they have to be seen to be staying on top of the latest trends and developments in, in this area. And, and the Ingram was 
widely thought of as one of the biggest, uh, one of the best in his field. So it was um, great to, to hear him talk. Um, it was plenty of detail on, on, on what they look for, for, um, you know, what they look for in a striker or a midfielder and, and how they kind of whittle it down to a short list to then pass on to the sporting director and the scouts to look at in a bit more detail. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was just a, a really interesting forum and, and you don't really... As you say, you never hear from these guys and, and for obvious reasons, they're, they're very secretive because they're trying to keep um, one step ahead of, of the rivals, aren't they? But um, yeah, it was um, it, it was a really good day at Stamford Bridge on, on Friday. I think one of the, the more interesting bits of, of that piece that you wrote, Gorsty, and I'll, I suppose I'll throw over to, to Kai on this one, bring him back into the conversation, was that kind of thing that, that Ian Graham said of you know how much it's changed in, in such a short time. It's only 10 years ago that we were talking about this sort of thing in a, a very different way to, to what we do now, Kai. And as Gorsty said, it's it's very much just part of the way that we report things. You see it on Match of the Day, all of these analytical elements of football. It's very quickly become very normal. Yeah, it's, it's I think, completely accepted now amongst fans and, and journalists and, you know, everybody alike that uh, it's, it's just part of the game. And it's, it's you, as you say, you see it on TV, it's, it's on Sky, Match of the Day, it's, it's used in transfers it's, it's every everywhere you go now it's it's just it's just there and um it wasn't too long ago that it was maybe mocked by some i, I know the analyzed landfill guys maybe still come across that from time to time people saying xg and what well, that's a load of rubbish and it doesn't doesn't mean anything but uh you know i think if anybody's proven that it does then it's, it's liverpool and michael edwards and it's, it's only through their use of these kind of metrics and the data that they've been able to identify people like Mohamed Salah and Diego Jota, two examples that they had a more more or less a clear run at. There was there should have been looking at the numbers they produced since they've signed. There should have been a, a real clamour, and every team should have been trying to sign them, but they they just weren't, and they were able to secure them both for you know 30, 40 million, like very very good fees in this market. And it's it's through using this data and. These, these kind of uh, analytics that they've been able to do that. And it's not just transfers either, is it, Gorsty? Obviously, that's a, a big part of it, but there's, there's other elements that this sort of analytical approach comes into it as well. Was was that a big part of, of the conference as well, or, or was it more down the, the sort of transfer side of things? Uh, no, to be honest, I mean, um, Ian Graham explained how it's used in the medical departments and, and wherever else, but, but he did say that, Recruitment is, is where you get your biggest bang for your buck, essentially. And um, it was fascinating just to hear how Liverpool kind of uh, look at traits that are perhaps undervalued by other clubs. Um, you know, if a striker scores 30 goals a season and, he, and he's given you know, 15 assists, then he's obviously going to be very highly valued. And, and that is just obvious. But Liverpool looking at things that perhaps other teams aren't looking at. And I think Diogo Jota might be, a good example of that, to be honest, you know, someone who um, was a bit of a left field purchase almost, wasn't it? I don't think too many people would have expected him to fit the bill at Liverpool, but they're looking at, you know, pressing stats, the distance covered stats, the, the amount of runs per game and, and just the certain elements that aren't always, you know, that, that don't always make players massively valuable um, to, the, to the general transfer market. So I think that that was a, that was a key point. Um, also, looking at you know, kind of putting like a, a, a slideshow of um, you know searching for a midfielder, for example, and it was 
we're looking at two metrics, pressure regains and um, expected assists. And there's a certain amount of players who were great at one thing, not so good at another. And then you added in another metric and they were looking at certain players who were, as I say, good at this, not great at that, really good at the other thing. But essentially what it came down to is um, clubs like Liverpool have to make big compromises at certain points because they don't have the transfer outlay that the likes of a City or a Chelsea or a Manchester United do. So they can't kind of just kind of wave over it all and just think um, they're going to be able to get the best players because they got the most money. It's almost about deciding what is valuable to what to your team, what is valuable to how you play. And that was very much the theme that, that I, I came away with once listening to, to Ian Graham's presentation. So uh, I'd say it was quite a fascinating day and um, it was even more interesting just seeing Liverpool's research team and, and sporting director there, you know, on um, not kind of giving their own wisdom or anything like that, just listening and, and learning and looking to stay one step ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting stuff. I'm sure it was a, a brilliant day for him, for you. And if you've obviously not read the, the first piece that Gorsty wrote from that conference, that was out at lunchtime on Monday. I'd recommend reading that one. I think by the time people are listening to this podcast as a podcast, it will be out uh, the second piece from that conference as well. So really interesting stuff. Make sure you don't miss either of those. But for now, we'll be back on Friday with the next Blood Red podcast to talk ahead of Liverpool against Watford. For now, it's goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating and leave a review. One of the pilots goes down there and he actually sees the ghost of Don Repo standing there in the galley and he says to him just flat out, he says, be careful, there will be a fire on this plane. And so it freaks out this pilot. So he hops in this little one-man elevator, goes back upstairs. He's like out of breath. You know, literally the look on his face is like he just saw a ghost and he did. Hello, everyone. I'm Christine, and welcome to the Astro CEO Podcast, a podcast for all astropreneurs dedicated to taking your business to the next level using the power of human design, astrology, numerology, and powerful manifestation techniques. You can connect with me online at theastroceo.com. The American financier, J.P. Morgan, said it best, and I quote, Anyone can be a millionaire, but to become a billionaire, you need an astrologer. All right, astropreneurs, if you're ready, let's go ahead and jump right in. 
All right, astropreneurs, welcome back. So we are going to switch things up a little bit, do something a little bit different for the month of October. I thought it would be kind of interesting to focus on the paranormal. Let's focus on ghosts and hauntings. And uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Are you guys ready? All right. So I recently went on to Forbes and did some checking around. And apparently, this is the information I pulled from Forbes, that the Halloween season has actually become a multi-billion dollar event. The average household spends about $74 on Halloween-related expenses. Now, listen to this. People, on average, spend about $1.2 billion, that's with the B, on adult costumes. They also spend, on average, $950 million on children's costumes. They also spend $350 million on pet costumes. And on average... Costume spending during the Halloween season averages about $2.5 billion. All right, let's talk about Halloween candy. (laughs) About $2.1 billion is spent on Halloween candy alone. Haunted houses gross more than $300 million. I was quite taken back when I first came across this information on Forbes. I was shocked at how much money is spent during the Halloween season. So I don't know what kind of businesses that you guys have, but have you considered having a business that focuses on the paranormal or ghosts or hauntings um, or anything related to Halloween, it is, to my shock and amazement, it is a multi-billion dollar business. And it's very seasonal. I mean, Halloween only comes one day per year. It's very seasonal. But man, $2.5 billion on costumes alone is kind of mind-blowing. So let me start at the beginning. So I had a friend of mine come over to my house last week and we were chit-chatting and I said, hey, I think I'm going to switch up the podcast a little bit and talk about everything spooky, like ghosts and hauntings and things like that. And she was like, yeah, you know, go ahead and do it. So that's where I got the idea. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about some ghostly sightings on today's podcast. So to be specific, we are going to talk about the ghost of Flight 401. Have you guys even heard about the ghost of Flight 401? So if you have not, I encourage you to just sit back, relax. Let me tell you this story about the ghost of Flight 401, okay? So I'm going to start at the beginning, okay, at the very beginning here. You know, I am a product of the 60s and 70s. I was born in the 60s and grew up in the 70s. And I got to take you way back. I got to, you know, for especially for you younger folks out there, like I, I am totally dating myself right now. Um, but for you younger folks out there, let me just paint the picture of what it was like 
back in the 70s. So number one, uh, we didn't have cable TV. Okay, so there wasn't like 300 channels to choose from. Um, We had just regular TV, and that composed of ABC, NBC, CBS. We had PBS, and then we had that occasional like Channel 2, which was like the WB channel. And that was pretty much it. Um, So the selection back then was very limited. That's what we had to choose from. We had no cable back then. We had we did not have home computers. We didn't have iPads. We didn't have cell phones. So I wanted to paint that picture for you and tell you what happened in the 1970s. So picture this. There was a made-for-TV movie that came out that was aired on NBC in prime time. So you got to imagine, there's only basically three channels to choose from. This show aired on NBC in February of 1978. And the TV um, uh, film was titled The Ghost of Flight 401. Now, I was a teenager back then, and I remember watching this show when it came on. And it scared the living daylights out of me because I flew a lot. Even back then, I flew quite a bit. And so I wanted to paint the picture. Okay, you got to imagine, you know, here in the United States, we have three major television channels, no computers, no cell phones, no iPads, you know, so people were tuned in to what was happening on TV. There was three basic channels. And this show aired on NBC during primetime. And so that's where I want to start with. I want to paint the picture of of what we were experiencing during that time. But let me first start off by talking about the nitty gritty details of Eastern Airlines flight number 401. It was a scheduled flight from JFK to Miami. And shortly before midnight on December 21st, 1972, um, this L-1011 type aircraft crashed in the Florida Everglades. There were actually survivors, but let me go into a little bit more detail here. The, the pilots, including the flight engineer, were all killed on this plane crash. Two flight attendants were also killed, and 96 passengers did pass away. And basically what happened, um, so yeah, let me interject real quick. There were survivors, amazingly. There were some survivors that made it through the crash. So here's what happened back in 1972. This plane was coming in for a landing into Miami's airport. And the captain ordered that the first officer put the landing gear down. And they were looking for the three green lights to indicate that all the landing gear was down and locked in, and they did not get a third green light. So from the flight deck, it looked like the nose gear was not down. So the flight engineer agreed to go down into the lower part of the aircraft, and he went down there to take a look to see if he could actually see the the, the wheels, you know, deployed in a downward position. Um, so he went down there. You know, he took a flashlight, went down there, and basically the entire flight crew was consumed with looking at the landing gear to see if it was down or not. And because of that, 
they were not paying attention to the altitude. And so the NTSB came out and did the investigation on this flight, and they determined that it crashed due to the loss of situational awareness, which means that basically they were not paying attention. They were so consumed with worrying about if the landing gear was down that they didn't pay attention to the altitude, and that's why it crashed in the Florida Everglades. So that is the basic short story of um, the details about the crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 401. So here's where it gets interesting, and this is where the beginning of the TV show, uh, the made-for-TV movie, came out. So I encourage you guys, if you guys have not seen this movie, it aired back in the 70s. You can find it on YouTube. Um, Somebody reproduced it and put it on YouTube. So if you just Google uh, the ghost of Flight 401 on YouTube, the actual movie will come will come up for you and basically at the beginning of the movie it starts out where uh, one of the pilots the flight engineer his name was Don Repo he was at home uh, getting ready to go to work and he was scheduled to be on this flight and the beginning of the movie it shows his wife and she's there with him and she's like Don I'm begging you. She said, I got a really bad feeling about this flight. Really bad feeling. And can you just call in sick? And he's like, no, hon. He goes, I've never called in sick. I'm going to work. So it shows him in the beginning of the movie, he's taking a shower. He's getting ready for work. He's shaving. And he's putting on this aftershave cologne. And so the wife steps in and she's like, hey, Don, what happened to that expensive stuff that I got you? How come you don't wear that? And he's like, no, he goes, I just like my bay rum. That was the name of the cologne. So he's putting on his bay rum and he's getting ready for work. And she's literally begging him um, at the beginning of this movie. She's like, Don, please, I'm begging you, please don't get on this flight. I've got a bad feeling. I got a really bad feeling. And so he decided to to go on the flight that eventually crashed. And so in the movie, let me take you inside the movie about what had happened. So in the movie, it, it shows the plane had crashed. And shortly thereafter, um, what they had decided to do, and this is, you know, up for debate. Let me just say this because there's different versions about actually what had happened. But as the story goes, what had happened was Eastern Airlines decided to salvage some of the aircraft parts and reuse some of these parts that were still good on other L-1011 aircraft. And as the story goes, once they did that, people that were on these planes where the salvage parts were have had noticed that they had started to see the ghost of Don Repo on these planes. Passengers were seeing them. The crew members were seeing them. And the executives over at Eastern Airlines did not want this story to just, you know, be out in mainstream media. And so they were sending out warnings to Eastern Airline employees. Like if they were part of the ghost rumors, they could potentially get fired and lose their jobs um, because they didn't want this story, you know, blowing up in their face. 
And so throughout the movie, and here's one of the scariest parts, uh, one of the flight attendants was on an L-1011, and she went took this little elevator. They had this little elevator shaft that holds like one person, and it goes down into the lower level of the belly of the plane where they heat up the food. And so... She goes down there, and she's by herself, and she's heating up the food, and all of a sudden, she closes one of the, the doors to the, to the um, food warmers, and once she does that, she looks in the reflection of this door, and she sees an image come across, and it's the image of this pilot named Don, uh, Don Repo. And she's like freaked out. So she sees the image of this pilot and she turns around and he's standing there right behind her. So she freaks out. <laughs> she hops on this, you know, one man elevator shaft and, and goes back up the top and she's like freaking out. And so the company said that, you know, they wanted her to go see a psychologist before she flew again. And they were trying to disprove, you know, the things that she saw. And so as the story goes on, other flight crew members um, would see images of Don Repo and passengers, you know, just sitting in their seats would see image of, images of him in his pilot's uniform just sitting there. And then towards the end of the movie, um, one of the pilots is on this plane. I, I can't remember where they were flying to, but he goes down into the galley because one of the flight attendants came up and she's like, Don's down there. You know, you got to get down there. So one of the pilots goes down there and he actually sees the ghost of Don Repo standing there in the galley. And he says to him just flat out, he says, be careful. There will be a fire on this plane. And so it freaks out this pilot. So he hops in this little one man elevator, goes back upstairs. He's like out of breath, you know, literally the look on his face is like he just saw a ghost and he did and so the captain's like well what did you see down there you know what happened he's like i saw don levy i saw the ghost of i mean not not don levy don repo he's like i saw the ghost of don repo and he said there would be a fire on board this plane and sure enough there was a fire that um had started on this plane so in the meantime you know the executives here at you know eastern airlines are like you know, trying to debunk this. They're like, you know, this is just rumors. This is not true. Um, and the flight attendants and some of the, the flight crew that had actually seen the ghost of Don Repo, um, they wanted to do a seance, you know, to bring him back, you know, um, so at the end of the movie, they ended up scheduling a, a seance with a psychic medium, you know, to bring forth messages from Don Repo. But just shortly before that, there was another flight, you know, um, that was portrayed inside this movie. And um, on this flight, the ghost of Don Repo shows up on one of these flights and he shows up inside the cockpit. And he says to one of the pilots, he says, there will never ever be another crash of an L-1011, you know, and it just scared the living daylights out of this guy that's, that's flying the plane, and so it's an interesting movie. I thought it'd be fun to talk about it, but, you know, do you ever think about, um, you know, are there ghosts 
on planes. You know, do you see any, have you ever seen any type of paranormal activity? You know, some of the um, the flight crew that had flew um, on Eastern Airlines started reporting that they could smell bay rum, and that was the cologne that Don Repo would, would wear, and they could smell it, you know, on the plane. Um, pretty interesting. So I just thought I would share this story with you. Um, you know, I think that ghosts or entities, whatever you want to call them, they do come through. They have different ways that they come through to us. I know, um, you know, my father had passed away in 1999, and there are times where I do smell his cologne. He had a, a distinct cologne that he always wore all the time, and I know when he's around because I can smell the cologne, kind of like the Eastern Airlines employees, you know, they could smell the Bay Rum cologne that you know, Don Repo would wear, but pretty interesting. You can also Google this. You you just type in the ghost of flight 401, but if you ever get the opportunity to watch this movie, it is available on YouTube. You can go check it out, but um, it's pretty scary. You know, back in the seventies, you know, we had all these scary movies coming out all the time. We had Jaws and, you know, Amityville um, horror. And I I can't think of all of them, but um, just scary things, um, towering Inferno and Earthquake and all these movies that came out in the 70s. But yeah, I just wanted to share that story with you and ask you, you know, um, have you seen any paranormal activity that goes on um, on board any aircraft that you've been on? You know, do you even know? Like, I I can tell you this because I've worked in the airline industry almost my entire life, probably a good 20 years I've been in the airline industry. And, you know, I have to ask you, do you even think about, like, what's in the cargo? Um, How do you feel, you know, if there's a dead body down there, like, you know, somebody that's in a coffin? Or how do you feel um, when there's organs down there, like for transplants, you know, medical um, transplants, they, we transport them aboard commercial airlines. So do you ever think about that? Do you ever wonder about that? Like what is down in the cargo hold when you're flying on an airplane? Um, Gives you kind of something different to think about the next time you fly. But yeah, I thought I would share the story with you about the ghost of Flight 401. Um, Pretty interesting story. Some people say it's not true. Some people do say it's true. Um, I'll leave it up to you to debate that. But um, pretty interesting story. So I wanted to share that with you. Uh, So we are going to dedicate the whole month of October to ghost stories and paranormal activity. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Astro CEO podcast. Stay safe, my friends. I'll talk to you soon. All right, astropreneurs, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like what you've heard, please check out the other episodes of the Astro CEO podcast. You can always find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on my website, which is theastroceo.com. Until next time. Please leave us a review on iTunes.
My name's Savannah Dixon. I'm 25. I'm based in Liverpool. I'm originally from Plymouth. My degree is in criminology. Savannah finished her degree in 2019 with high hopes of kickstarting her career. So shortly after I finished my degree, um, I moved to Liverpool three months before the pandemic began. And then unfortunately, as soon as the pandemic hit, it really narrowed my search. It affected her mental health as well as her bank balance. So I went from being really optimistic to actually becoming quite depressed at times because the job market was so small and I was looking forward to going into a career in criminology or something similar, working with with youths. But there were absolutely no jobs in that area around at the time. Everything came to a halt. So um, I went from being really hopeful to actually thinking, what am I going to do next? Maybe I'm going to have to change careers um, and my job might actually be something different from the degree that I studied in. So that that was really difficult. She wasn't alone in what she experienced. With friends, uh, they've had to move jobs a lot. A lot of my friends are based in Plymouth, so they either kept the jobs, were on furlough, or have had to just make do with any job that they can get. It's been particularly difficult, I've noticed, for graduates, just because they can't go into the expected careers that they originally wanted to it's definitely shifted their whole lives around a lot of my friends are either working from home or they're just going into the office like once a week so they're not really getting the support that they would have if they were in the office five days a week um i've noticed with myself as well it's definitely more difficult to get to grips with the job when you're at home on your own and you haven't got colleagues to ask for help And it's also socially, it's really difficult to make friends when you're just online. You don't bond the same with your colleagues at home. So that's a disadvantage. Savannah didn't give up though and put her time during lockdowns to good use. I actually set up my own business in between because at the time Liverpool is known for hospitality so I couldn't go back into a hospitality job at that time. I also used to do like call centre work, I couldn't do that either. So I actually made up my own candle business and um, just used whatever skills I had. So I then was struggling with managing a business and managing bills at the same time. Setting up a new business obviously takes a lot of money. So then I seeked help from Universal Credit just to make sure that I was making ends meet as a graduate. So they then signposted me towards Kickstart and that led on to the job that I'm in now, which is a social media lead with Kickstart as the scheme. So I think the problem is, is we need some long-term stability. The Kickstart has been really great, um, but it only offers a solution for six months and we need something going ahead. We want careers. We don't want to be in and out of work. Zero hour contracts were really popular before, but it just doesn't work for young people. It doesn't help us to get onto the ladder or secure jobs that we want for life. So will politicians deliver for young people? What does levelling up look like? And how can businesses build back better and greener? Welcome to this edition of the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine what the UK's post-pandemic recovery could look like. Boris Johnson gave his big party conference speech with the words build back better splashed across the lectern he stood at. But how many big ideas does the government really have? Or the opposition, for that matter? There is no reason why the inhabitants of one part of the country should be geographically fated to be poorer than others. Or why people should feel they have to move away from their loved ones or communities 
to reach their potential. We have a fuel crisis, a pay crisis, a goods crisis and a cost of living crisis all at the same time. I have to be blunt with you. Our recovery comes with a cost. Our national debt is almost 100% of GDP. So we need to fix our public finances. This is a big moment in our country's history. We will look back at this moment and we'll ask, how did the nation rebuild after the pandemic? Did we learn? Did we use the crisis to make the future? Before we get on to discussing big ideas for businesses ahead of COP26, I first want to bring in an organisation helping young people to navigate the jobs market. My name is Laura Jane Rawlings. I'm the Chief Exec of Youth Employment UK. Youth Employment UK is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to tackle youth unemployment. We do this by working directly with young people and really understanding their barriers and challenges, supporting employers and then trying to influence government policy to make sure it meets the needs of all young people. Data and the insight that we have from young people is, you know, they absolutely do want to work. They're really keen. They're they're looking for youth-friendly employers, you know, employers who are paying well, who support the development of young people, who create really good and equal opportunity for young people. So there's that. It's about making sure those million vacancies are good quality and youth-friendly. But the bigger issue here for young people is they're still not always getting the careers information they know to know how to navigate and find those opportunities. Young people were two and a half times more likely to work in the catering and hospitality sector, which was, of course, the first to shut down, really, and the longest to be shut down. So there, there is that challenge that young people were losing their jobs or placed on furlough. Of course, employers stopped hiring in the same volume and, and, and at a time when we had the summer school leavers and college and university leavers try and enter the labour market. But actually, pre-pandemic, the youth unemployment data was still too high. There were still more than three times more likely to be unemployed as a young person before the pandemic started than you were in any other age group. So youth unemployment has been a a challenge for this country for some time. And the pandemic amplified that. What we've heard from young people, particularly through the Youth Voice Census, is that worry about being able to find good quality work. The mental health and anxiety has gone up, you know, incredibly for this younger age group. And also that need for catching up. You know, young people weren't finishing education in the the way that they'd expected to, but also those enrichment activities like volunteering, having a part-time job, completing different activities and social interactions that come normally and and the rest of us have, have all had. Young people have lost out on all of those and they're the places that we build our softer skills and our confidence and and really young people did miss out across the the pandemic for those things we cannot imagine what it's like to grow up during a pandemic what it's like to lose those contact points that everyone else takes for granted and you know and had easily at their disposal i think all of us have to do better at not assuming we know where young people are at and actually going to to reach them in their communities and talking to them and young people really want that you know and every the Youth Voice Census is a really big survey and at the end of it we give young people the chance to tell us 
you know, what they want from us, what they want from society, what they want from government. And all they wanted was to be heard. I think it's really powerful. And I think, you know, grown-ups have got to stop and just listen and absolutely take action on what young people are telling them because it makes sense. It makes such sense when you read the census and, you know, the case studies and hear the voices of young people. Of course, there's things that they know that we can do better for them. Joining me to take a deeper look at dealing with the post-pandemic recovery is our business presenter, Ian King, and the Press Association's environment correspondent, Emily Beamant. Ian, just lay out some of the issues that are around there. It's, to my mind, all a bit of a tangle as well. There's a bit of Brexit in there too, but we can't really completely separate out which is which. That's absolutely right, Dermot. Clearly, the UK economy has gone through a pretty rough ride, as indeed has the global economy. And there are lots of parts of the world that are still not back to uh, levels of GDP where they were pre-pandemic. The UK is one of them. The United States and China are already back to uh, pre-pandemic level, if not bigger. But the UK is uh, still clearly not quite there yet. And there are a number of factors holding it back. And as you say, it's really very difficult to untangle Brexit from a lot of this. I think it's fairly clear that the UK's immigration policy post-Brexit has contributed to some of the uh, supply chain bottlenecks and labour shortages that we're seeing right across the economy. There are other longer term issues with the UK economy that have really come to a head in the last few months. One of them obviously is a a chronic shortage of uh, skills. I mean that's a long-running issue in the UK. Another is the UK's fairly patchy productivity record which is tied into that first issue. And so those are the kind of issues that are holding the economy back from further growth. And bear in mind of course that the UK's national debt has really taken off during the pandemic going into the crisis that the UK had a national debt of around £1.7 trillion. It's now up to uh, £2.1 trillion as a proportion of GDP going into the pandemic. The UK's national debt stood at around 79%. It's now up to uh, 97%, which is the highest since 1963. So clearly there's a crisis with the public finances that needs addressing just at the moment when the government is facing a lot of calls to invest in infrastructure, to uh, give public sector workers a pay rise, all sorts of challenges of that order. And who's getting hit worse? Clearly, as per usual, those on the lowest incomes. Is there a geographical dimension as well? I mean, interestingly, it looks as though London has uh, been hardest hit in terms of the labour market, which will probably surprise listeners from outside London who, who often think that the capital is a, is a place where the, the streets are paved with gold. If you look, for example, at the proportion of the workforce that went on to furlough during the crisis, well, London was uh, by far and away the hardest hit there, uh, whereas there are some other parts of the country, for example, the northeast of England and Yorkshire, where employment levels have already returned to pre pandemic uh, levels. The furlough scheme has obviously now come to an end at the end of September. And going into that period, uh, London and the South East probably had more workers on furlough as a proportion of the labour force than anywhere else. But clearly, as you mentioned, there's a cost of living crisis as well. Household incomes are going to be squeezed in coming months by rising energy bills. For example, you're seeing food price inflation creeping in. Obviously, uh, petrol prices have uh, gone up during the recent shortages. And all of those will uh, eat into household incomes and affect probably more more aggressively those parts of the country where wages tend to be low, which are, are Wales and Northern Ireland predominantly, as well as uh, parts of the North East. 
And of course, climate change is a dimension in this unaffected one imagines by Brexit and the pandemic, Emily. But um, certainly, you know, given what we've seen over the last few, just the last few months in terms of extreme weather events, we know that it's galloping along. I say unaffected by the, the pandemic, but did that have any effect in terms of global emissions? Because obviously there were global lockdowns. Did that show us the way forward? Well, I think it's certainly true that the pandemic did cause a temporary dip in emissions around the world, as you say, because of the lockdowns that we saw and the restrictions on travel in particular. But I think it also highlighted the scale of the challenge that's facing us in that in 2020, there was a global drop in carbon emissions of around 7%. And in the UK for carbon emissions last year, it was about 11%. Just to put that in context, the UN science body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, say that we need to cut emissions by 45% in the next decade in order to have a good chance of holding temperature rises to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, beyond which it's thought that we're going to see sort of increasingly severe impacts of extreme weather and rising sea levels and so on. Now, obviously, the way to do it is not to have a global lockdown like we saw in the past year, but it does just highlight that the sort of level of the challenge that we've got to do in order to get ourselves onto that trajectory of reducing emissions while increasing our economies. Just from that 1.5 degrees centigrade limit, how far along that track are we already? How much headroom is there left? We're already at 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And as you mentioned, we've seen in just the past few months, terrible flooding in China, terrible flooding in Germany. We've seen record heat waves in North America. And those events are being linked increasingly clearly to climate change. Just a few months ago, the, the UN put out a report which was described as a code red for humanity. So we're pushing up very quickly against those sort of targets that the world has agreed to try and meet to to try and keep temperature rises to well below two degrees celsius above pre-industrial levels and to try and meet this more difficult but you know hopefully more safe 1.5 degrees level the best innovation comes when there is a need and a problem to solve rarely have we faced a more testing time Join us live from Yorkshire for the first in a series of Sky News in-person events where we will explore how to fire up UK business. Watch thought-provoking discussions with Sky News experts on building a stronger and greener economy. Big Ideas Live, Tuesday the 12th of October on Sky News TV, mobile and podcast. Okay, let's examine now some of the potential solutions and dare I say, perhaps opportunities, certainly I'm sure, Emily, when it comes to green jobs. But uh, Ian, the mantra is, I hate saying it actually, because it's it's been so politicised, isn't it? Build back better. Joe Biden's using it. Boris Johnson's using it. But let's examine that. What does it mean, build back better? You know, what's being destroyed and what's going to go in its place that uh, is better? That's a very good question, and you can answer that in a number of ways. I mean, I would take Build Back Better in one sense to mean what sort of businesses have been destroyed by the pandemic. And what's really interesting, actually, is that if you examine the uh, scarring to the economy on a permanent basis after the pandemic, there doesn't appear to have been as much as there was after the global financial crisis, for example. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that household balance sheets and company balance sheets 
are in a much better position coming out of the pandemic than they were coming out of the financial crisis. If you look, for example, at the banking sector, I mean, the, the banking sector of, during the global financial crisis basically acted as a drag anchor because uh, they didn't have sufficient levels of capital put aside. If you look at the pandemic, well, the banks didn't miss a beat. They carried on lending throughout. There were government schemes to encourage them to uh, carry on lending B bills and C bills, for example. And you didn't really see businesses going under due to uh, a lack of capital and a, a lack of bank lending. Where businesses did go under, they tended to be in sectors such as hospitality and retailing, where, of course, uh, they had closures forced on them and there was nothing that could be done to keep them open. And even bank lending really wasn't uh, the solution there. And you could say in some ways that there was probably, going into the pandemic, overcapacity in retail and in hospitality anyway. A lot of uh, overexpansion in both of those sectors in recent years and in the case of retail at a time when obviously a lot of business was going online so the question for me is really whether those businesses will come back whether those sectors will be as big as they were and I suspect they probably won't be so you have to look at building back better in other senses as well and I think what you can interpret the Prime Minister and the government is trying to say is that they want a a more high skilled a more productive economy and as I said at the beginning low productivity has been the key area that's been uh, dragging back the economy for many, many years, many decades almost. You know, this is a low skill, low wage economy compared with some of our peers, for example, in continental Europe and in countries like Japan and the United States. And Emily, that brings you in then. Uh, It's also build back greener, isn't there? Uh, Another of the the slogans and the potential for jobs (laughs) and growth. How do you see it? Yes, I mean, it was definitely something that particularly last year, there was a lot of talk about a green recovery from the COVID pandemic. A lot of announcements were made on that. How much of the recovery investment actually went into green things is another question. I think it was a UN and Oxford University study earlier this year suggested it was only about a fifth of the recovery money that was announced by sort of major economies ended up going into things that were green. But there are all sorts of opportunities and they have ranged in the UK from investing in sort of natural solutions to climate change. So putting money into areas of the economy that are looking at tree planting or restoring natural habitats to sort of use that side of the economy to help both boosting jobs, but also, you know, storing carbon, restoring nature, which is another part of of the green recovery. Another area which has got a lot of potential is tackling the energy crisis. So home heating is an area where we've really got to get a grip on emissions with 85% of our homes being heated by gas boilers. And that needs to change as part of our efforts to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And that's a potentially very good area to focus on in terms of insulation, in terms of energy efficiency, in terms of changing our home heating, because it's something that happens all around the country. It can provide jobs all around the country and they're jobs that are UK based jobs. Now, the scheme that the government launched on that, the Green Homes Grant, wasn't an overarching success, but it does show that there are potential for for those kind of jobs in those areas that can feed into the government's levelling up agenda in terms of, of making sure those jobs go all around the country. And Ian, what is big businesses' role 
in this green agenda. Clearly, the government can't do all the, the billions of investment uh, themselves and certainly isn't even indicating it would do so. Now, I want to tap into your unique knowledge because, Ian, you rub shoulders with them on a daily basis on Ian King Live. You, you look them in the whites of the eyes. A big business playing lip service to sustainability or do they truly believe and do they see a gain on the bottom line fundamentally? No, I think there is no doubt that big business is uh, is committed to this agenda. I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. If you look at the whole ESG agenda, that's environmental, social and governments. Companies, every single company wants to talk about it. Every single company wants to be seen to be doing something. And the reason for that is because their investors, the uh, big city battalions, the insurance companies, the pension funds are all urging them to do so and uh, threatening them with disinvestment if they don't perceive them to be uh, playing their part. I think this is something that's been going on actually since the global financial crisis. Obviously, the banks were beaten up very uh, heavily subsequently for the role that they played in helping uh, contribute to the crisis. It wasn't just the banks, by the way. It was everyone in society for uh, living beyond their means and borrowing too much, households and governments alike. But the banks uh, copped a lot of flack, and I think that was a, a real warning to businesses elsewhere that they needed to be uh, seen to be doing the right thing and having to acquire a social licence in the jargon in which to operate. So with the uh, pivot to uh, net zero in particular, they're all very, very keen to talk about what they're doing. And indeed, you see some very, very big capital commitments. I think, for example, about uh, Scottish Power, which is one of the uh, big six energy providers, as we used to call them. Very, very uh, committed investor into uh, renewable energy SSE, the old uh, Scottish and Southerners, we used to call them, formerly a member of the Big Six. They sold out of their household supply business a while ago. But again, probably just about the biggest investor in renewable energy uh, generation in this country. So they are very, very sincere about it. They are devoting literally billions of pounds in capital to uh, achieving the transition. National Grid is another one. Again, National Grid have invested billions of pounds of their shareholders' money in the pursuit of uh, net zero and other related causes. For example, there's going to be a good deal of expense in hooking up Hinkley Point C, the UK's first new nuclear power station in a generation, onto the grid as well. So those are the kind of investments that are being carried out. But if you look elsewhere across the energy sector, you're seeing uh, the likes of BP, for example, spending absolutely vast sums of money for licences to be able to uh, operate uh, offshore wind production facilities. Uh, Shell, likewise, are uh, spending an awful lot of money to that end. I mean, the question a lot of shareholders are beginning to ask is actually whether these sort of businesses are spending too much money. They're paying too high a price in some cases for some of these assets, particularly at a time, uh, if you look at Shell, for example, it's just uh, sold its entire US shale operations for uh, just over 9 billion US dollars. Well, a lot of people would have uh, preferred to have seen them uh, hang on to that because those were good cash generative businesses and particularly in the current climate, the recent spike in wholesale energy prices. But Shell made this commitment several years ago now to uh, pivot away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. So that's the sort of uh, initiative that you're seeing being taken. So the, yeah, these companies are undoubtedly very genuine in, uh, in their sincerity. OK, and Emily, I'm getting a sense then, given the nature of these investments, so that they can key in to run alongside the government's levelling up agenda. I mean, these aren't necessarily going to be jobs that are created maybe the 
financial side of it in London and the South East. They're going to be spread around. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that we need to see now is the net zero strategy, which is due to be published by the government before COP26, which takes place in just a few weeks time in Glasgow and will come sort of at around the same time as a budget and and spending review, which are also just days before COP26. And I think those will be keenly watched to see the kinds of things that the government is planning in order to get us onto this path to reach net zero emissions by 2050. And a lot of those things are things that will happen around the country and will be things that local people in their local areas will see different things in different parts of the country. So, for example, we've got areas of the country which are perfectly placed for servicing our burgeoning offshore wind industry. We've got other areas where we might see industrial clusters that are using hydrogen, so hydrogen production, to replace things that are currently done with fossil fuels, such as steel production. So those jobs might change the sort of job you might be doing in those areas. We're potentially going to have battery factories for electric vehicles. Then, as I said, we're going to have things that are happening all around the country, changing your home heating, potentially sort of infrastructure changes such as more cycle lanes and all of those sort of things that could happen in in different parts of the country. But I think one of the things that is important is that this is a global race effectively to be providing some of these things, whether it's EV batteries or heat pumps or all of these things that can be manufactured. So that's the challenge now is to make sure that those things are manufactured in the UK as well as used and installed in the UK. Well, listen, we've been uh, addressing some really deep questions, but uh, clearly a lot more time needs to be devoted to these issues and so many more. And uh, Ian, on that very note, I know you're taking part in a big Sky News event, uh, which is going to examine issues like these and more in depth. Tell us about it. Tuesday, the uh, 12th of October, we are going to be in South Yorkshire uh, with an event called uh, Sky News Big Ideas Live, where we're going to be looking at how we can fire up the business and the economy post-pandemic, looking at the kind of jobs that need to be created, where those jobs are going to come from, whether the green agenda is going to be a contributor to that. And we'll also, because we're going to be in uh, Rotherham in South Yorkshire, we'll be looking at how uh, the north of England in particular can play its part in the recovery. I'm going to be up there all day along with Trevor Phillips and Samantha Washington, uh, my fellow presenters, and uh, Ed Conway, uh, our uh, economics and data editor, is going to be there as well. There'll be uh, regional business leaders up there, other national players from uh, the world of business, uh, an invited audience all contributing to these discussions on the future of jobs, the future of green growth and the future of the north of England post-pandemic. And it's going to be an event that will be uh, not only carried on uh, the TV channel for Sky News, but also on the website, the app and the uh, social media channels as well. Sky News, big ideas. And you can get involved on Twitter using the hashtag Big Ideas Live. My thanks to Emily, Ian and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily podcast hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce, along with our interviews producer, Tatiana Alderson. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, follow us for free where you found this one. And we'd love a review while you're there. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store.
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.